Turn with me, if you would, in God's Word to not Philippians 1, 1 to 30, as it says in the uh, bulletin, but to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6. And we will be reading the first 14 verses of this chapter. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and, had, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the uh, king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has written, and on whose seal a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse to the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before before whom you have begun to fall, is of this Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to see you all. Before um, we go into our second scripture reading, I just want to address the... There's only a few handful of children in the room. I'm going to address you really quickly. Um, Every once in a while, you'll probably hear a minister come up here and say... Words like this, they'll say, we've got to have to magnify the Lord. And so you might hear me say that today, and I want you to think of something, uh, have a picture in your mind. When we hear the word magnify, maybe you think of something like a, uh, a magnifying glass or a, a microscope where it takes something small and makes it large for you. Right now, it's the season where, if you're a boy, I don't know if you do this, but I just did this when I was a kid. I would take a magnifying glass and look at bugs. And in hot summer days, I would use it to burn bugs. Don't suggest you do that. But that's what boys do. Uh, don't think of that when you hear a minister say, magnify uh, the Lord. Don't think of a, a microscope or even a magnifying glass, because that's just taking something small and making it large. I work with a young man who, because he lives at home, he can spend loads of money on a telescope, a very big, expensive telescope. That's the privileges of living at home. 
and not having to pay bills. And uh, what this telescope does is it takes something that to the naked eye looks insignificant and small and reveals that, no, there's something greater and larger and more magnificent than what we're seeing with our naked eye. So the telescope takes something that's actually very, very large but looks insignificantly small and then reveals to us how truly great and magnificent and glorious it is. In a telescope's case, it's a, a celestial body. Uh, in the case of the Christian, when we're magnifying the Lord, it is us revealing to the whole world, and maybe even at times to ourselves, how truly great and magnificent Christ is. That to our naked eye, he may look small, but boy, when you start pulling things back, you get to see how truly great and magnificent he is. And when Christ was incarnate, that's exactly what happened. They just looked at the outward and saw a carpenter's son. They didn't see God made flesh. So, boys and girls, if you ever hear me or anyone else talk about magnifying the Lord, think telescope, making something that might look small, reveal to you how truly large it is. So let us uh, go to our second reading of today. Second reading is going to come from the book of uh, the Philippians. We're going to do... Chapter 1, verses 1 through 26, and looking back now, we could have just finished it off, but I only have verses 1 through 26 in my notes. So let's go there. You can follow along with me. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of uh, all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, and I will not be at all ashamed." 
but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for my, uh, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, what's happening today is I'm kind of bringing you into the middle of a series. I tend to land a book and just work my way through it. And this is the book I'm presently working on. Um, and so don't worry. Uh, I'm going to catch you guys up. Uh, we're we're kind of landing in a, a, a spot that's probably Paul's, one of Paul's most famous statements, to live as Christ and to die as gain. But what has happened in the... Uh, in this chapter so far, I'll just kind of give you a, a quick little synopsis so that we can f- get context as to why he's saying what he's saying and then what we're going to do today. The goal of today is this, is to determine what does Paul really mean as we dive deep into these verses? What does he mean by to live as Christ and to die as gain? What is he really saying? Uh, the other goal is to harmonize the tension between the two, the, the life and the death, the gain uh, and the Christ. And at the end, we'll package it all together and see how Paul comes to the decision he makes and how we can apply this to our life. So our, that is our goal today, to understand what is to live as Christ and to die as gain. What does it mean? The tension between the two to harmonize it and Paul's final uh, decision or choice. But to bring you into things in the context, the book of Philippians is really a thank you letter. What has happened is Paul finds himself in Roman jail uh, for the sake of the gospel. And you find that out in the, the first part of um, of this chapter. We also read about the story in, in the book of Acts. And this is uh, what's happened is the church of Philippi has sent Epaphroditus to bring uh, support to Paul while he's in prison. And this is a thank you letter he's sending back at, by the hands of Epaphroditus, explaining where he's at, his thankfulness for the church, and to address certain pastoral issues that he's a concern for a church that he himself, God, used to plant. If you look at the story, God used miraculous things. He used common everyday things. He was out preaching by the water and, of course, meets Lydia, and the church starts in Lydia's home. But then, of course, he's arrested, and we know this story that he's in prison, and as he's praising God, the chains come off, and the prison guard thinks, oh, they're all gone, so he's going to kill himself. And, and Paul calls out, of course, you know, we're all here. Don't take your life. And God radically saves that man and his household. And the church begins. And so Paul, in, so far in this letter, he's basically, he's laid out, as we've read, uh, his thankfulness for the church and that he's in prison for the sake of the gospel. And he's just finished saying how he's going to rejoice that Christ is being glorified, whether in pretense or in sincerity. Because that is the heart of Paul, that Christ be glorified. And so where we're going to begin today is in verse, the last half of verse 18 
uh, verse 18b. And how I tend to do things is I go verse by verse through, and I'll stop and explain things. And I hopefully, if you're a note taker, I make it easy for you. If not, I apologize. But verse 18b begins this way. It says, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, this this word deliverance doesn't primarily mean that he's expecting uh, to be acquitted or freed. And what I mean by that is this, is that, is that we, it's easy for us to read and say, well, he's talking about his upcoming trial. He's, he's sitting in house arrest, waiting trial in Caesar's court. And although in verse 25, he does in fact reveal to us that he's expecting to be acquitted. He doesn't know this for sure, but he expects to be freed. But this isn't what Paul's talking about here. When Paul says, this will turn out for my deliverance, he's actually quoting from the Greek translation of an Old Testament book. He's he's quoting from Job 13, 16, where Job says that this will be my salvation. So in Job 13, if you remember Job, uh, horrible things happen to Job, and he has horrible friends who come and tell him why these things happen have happened to him. And in Job 13, Job is speaking about a day where he will be standing in a heavenly court and find vindication and final salvation before God. And what we know is Job's earthly friends, what they were telling him is uh, you're suffering because you've obviously done something wrong. So really all you have to do is repent and, and make things right. And what Job is saying to them is, when I stand before the Lord, I will be vindicated, and I will know salvation. And so like Job, Paul isn't looking towards an earthly deliverance as such, but he's looking towards an eternal salvation, an eternal deliverance. In fact, this this Greek word which we have translated here as deliverance means salvation and This is the way that it is used all throughout the New Testament, referring to eternal salvation. So this is what Paul's getting at when he says, this will be for my deliverance. So the deliverance is not referring to physical freedom and life. And we can know this because we can see further evidence as we move along forward into verse 20. You'll probably look down at verse 20 if you have your Bibles open. You'll notice this small little word, two-letter word, as. And what does it do? It's connecting these two verses. And as Paul goes on to explain what he meant by for his deliverance. So if you look at verse 20, it continues on. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by by death. So what did Paul mean when he said, this will be for my deliverance? He's starting off here, he says, it's so that he will not be ashamed, but honoring to God, honoring to Christ. And this deliverance will be whether he lives or whether he dies. So Paul's eager expectation and hope is not dependent upon the outcome of his trial. That's not what he's looking to. In the natural, that's what, if I put myself in Paul's shoes, I can't honestly say that my hope wouldn't be looking towards the outcome of the trial, but that's not what he's doing. 
Its realization is not determined by earthly circumstances. So his expectation isn't based upon that. His heavenly hope transcends his earthly circumstances, which is a glorious and wonderful truth possible for all Christians. He did not look at life and death the way the world does. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in a day and age where life is very held very cheaply. And what I mean by that is if you look at the beginning of life with abortion and you look at the end of life with assisted suicide, euthanasia, the world looks at life very differently than what we do. And what Paul describes Paul's hope transcends his earthly circumstances. And the question you have to ask is why? Why does Paul's hope transcend his earthly circumstances? How can our hope transcend our earthly circumstances? Well, Paul, the reason why his hope transcended his earthly circumstances is because his eyes were set upon something the world was blind to. And that, of course, is his eyes were set upon Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, by reading both verses 19 and 20, it is seen that Paul's salvation consisted of this, and this is to quote in his own words, that Christ will be honored, glorified, magnified in my body, whether by life or death. That's what his salvation consisted of. His eager expectation and hope is that Christ would be honored, magnified and glorified, whether he lives or whether he dies. Paul's greatest concern was not the outcome of his trial when he stands before Caesar's court. His greatest concern is that his manner of life or death would go to serve to glorify his Lord. That he could stand without shame before God in his heavenly courts. Christ's glory and Paul's salvation couldn't be separated. And that's true for you as well. So whether Paul lived or he died, he wanted people to know how great Christ is. And from verses 21 and forward, Paul begins to explain how Christ is shown supremely great, how Christ will be magnified in either case, whether he lives or dies, whether by life or death. So for the rest of the verses that we go on, this is what he's explaining. So let's continue looking. Verse 21, and this is, of course, I'm sure you have this memorized. It's one of Paul's most famous statements. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to draw your attention to the fact this little word is. It's not found in the original language. As Paul writes, he is so emphatic that he says literally, for me to live Christ to die gain. And this is to make even it even more emphatic. Keep in mind that while he's saying this, he's waiting for his day in court. He is potentially on death row. You and I, we know the end of the story. But in this moment, as he's penning this for Paul, for him, death is no longer theoretical. I joke around with my family and with the officers I work with, and I tell them that, you know, uh, 
life has a 100% mortality rate. But in me saying it in that moment, it's simply theoretical to the audience and to the one who's speaking. But put yourself in Paul's shoes, who's sitting, although in house arrest, waiting for his day at trial, and he could die. In fact, we know later, not in this situation, but in a similar one while he's in jail, he does die. We know the rest of the story. However, at this time, in this writing, he doesn't know what we know. We have the luxury of being able to look back 2020 hindsight, as they say. And so what does Paul mean by saying to live Christ? Well, continue reading. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So when Paul says to live Christ or to live is Christ, one of the things he means is this. It means continued fruitful labor. It means more Timothys, more Titus, more Lukes. It means more churches planted. It means more sermons taught, more letters written. It means that by word and deed he stands in contrast to the world, proclaiming the gospel and the exclusivity and excellency of Christ. It means living in this world as a joyful dissenter to the spirit of this age. To live as Christ means continued fruitful labor. And he realizes that those who taste his fruit, they will taste the sweetness of the one who saved Paul, called Paul, and who empowers Paul. But that is not all that Paul means. So to live Christ means, in part, continued fruitful labor. But that's not all that it means. He's saying, everything I have and everything that I am is bound up in Christ. Christ is my goal in life. Christ is my pattern of life. And Christ is my passion of my life. And Christ is the pursuit of my life. And Christ is my the reason for my life. Paul is saying, well, let me pause for a second. I, over the years, I've done a lot of counseling. I was going to pick on men, but I'll do both. And that was a lot of single people. And for some strange reason, and I was in that boat too, single people seem to think that the prize at the end of the race of their walk with God is that spouse that they're longing for. That isn't the case. The prize at the end of the race is Christ himself. Paul is saying that Christ is the finish line towards which we run. He's the prize for which we run. And in fact, he's actually the strength by which we run this race. He is everything. Paul is saying Christ is the Alpha and Omega, and he's every letter in between. Life is the pursuit of Christ by the grace of Christ for the love of Christ. So when Paul says to live Christ, it means continued fruitful labor, and it means that everything in between is also Christ. He is the reason why we run. He's the prize at the end of the race, and he's the power in which we run that race. He is all in all. 
That is what he means by to live Christ. But he, he doesn't simply stop there. He continues on. And Paul, what does he do? Is he says this. He says, to die, gain. Which is such an odd statement to a, a, an unbeliever's ear. To die, gain. Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds may follow them. So verses like what we see here in Philippians or or in Revelation are strange and it makes us look forward to death. We We look in anticipation to death. We see a blessing in death. We find comfort and rest in death. And there's a little bit of a tension there. It's almost as if death sounds like a a misunderstood friend. And the reason why I say that is because there's also verses which definitely sound like like death is a foe. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of sin. We know this, that the wages of sin is death. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Corinthians says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So there's a tension here. We read where Paul says to live, Christ, to die, gain. It should make us pause and say, there's other verses that that cause me to go, what's going on here? How can... Death be gain. So I do want to apologize. I didn't uh, give the correct scripture reading, and that's why we had to pull an audible. If you know football, that's a, you're changing the play mid-game. Mid we wanted to re- read about Esther. We'll read from the book of Esther. We, we heard the story of Mordecai and Haman. My question to you is, was Haman Mordecai's friend? You're allowed to answer me. I know this is a Reformed church. I come from a background where people talk to me all the time. You're allowed to say yes or no. Was Mordecai, was Haman Mordecai's friend? Well, I'll answer it for you since you're all being quiet. The answer is no. If you know the story, uh, Haman wanted to kill Mordecai out of jealousy and anger And he had gallows made so that he could hang Mordecai. And the story that we read is this, is that instead of getting permission to hang Mordecai, he shows up and the king wants to honor Mordecai. And what Mordecai is, is Mordecai, I mean, Haman is not Mordecai's friend. He is a shamed enemy, forced to walk before Mordecai and proclaim all that the king has said over him and to usher him into the king's presence. Death is a defeated enemy who has been shamed, who must go before you and usher each and every one of you who are Christ's into his presence to clothe you in the king's garbs to remove the clothing of mortality and to clothe you in immortality. Death is not your friend, but is a shamed enemy who is forced to, like Haman, to usher you into the presence of the king 
so that you might hear our precious king say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your Lord. The tension that we might feel there is in that reality that our relationship has changed to death. Death hasn't changed. It's still our enemy, but our relationship with death death has. It no longer has power over us. We no longer are a slave to the fear of death. It can no longer, it no longer can parade us to the gallows and destruction, but instead parades us into the presence of our king. There's a man named Tripoli. Most of you might not know him. In a song that he wrote, he said this, death is just a doorway to take me to my faithful lover. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in death, you will finally live face to face with Christ. No more distractions, no more obstructions. You will see him and his heaven and his heavenly beauty with your very own eyes. And I have no idea what that will be like. Just think of it. What will it be like for someday for to finally be in heaven and behold our Lord Jesus Christ? who died upon the cross, who who is raised for our justification, the one we live for and whom we follow, the one whom we've entrusted our very lives to, to finally be with him and to finally behold him. William Hendrickson, a commentator, he wrote it this way. He said, death is gain because it brings more of Christ to Paul and more of Paul to Christ. So until that day, like Paul, we will live, labor, and love as Christ did upon this earth. And in this way, as Paul says, Christ will be honored in our body. He'll be magnified. He'll be glorified in our body as we live, love, and labor like Christ had did upon this earth. I'm hoping that I relieve some of the tension between that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's continue on. Verse 22, if I'm to to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor uh, for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Well, there's two things I want to point out here. And first off, it's not really Paul's choice, ultimately. I mean, his life is really in the hands of Caesar and the court. But ultimately, Caesar's heart is in the hand of the Lord. We know that why, because Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wills. And so, although Paul is saying, I don't know which I'm going to choose, let's just be honest, the choice is not his to make. That's the first thing I want to point out. But second, our translation in the verses we just read falls a little short in verse 23. And what I mean by that is this, is it says that it's far better to depart and be with the Lord which is a true statement, but it's not really getting at what Paul's saying. If you look at the Greek, Paul uses what's called a double comparative here. And you might be saying to yourself, what is a, a, a double comparative? Well, 
think of it like child speak. You know, this is the way I think of it. It's not really child speak, but a child does it quite often. You know, maybe a child who tries cake for the first time, a young, young child would say to their mom, you know, uh, ice cream is yummy. Uh, cupcakes are very yummy. But mom, this is very, very yummier. And you know what the child's saying, even though the English might not be the best. And what Paul's saying is not just better, but much better. Even very, very much better. This is what Paul's saying in the Greek. And he knew what he was doing. Those three words that kind of would say very much better. In a way is to express something in the superlative degree. You know, just just the highest order. We see this uh, in scripture where it refers to God as being holy, holy, holy. Where it means holy, holier, and holy est to the highest that 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 God there is nothing holier. And so when Paul is using this kind of comparative, which doesn't really come through in our translation, he's saying this: to depart from Christ is the greatest of all things to be desired. It isn't just much better for him; it's the greatest thing that anyone could ever desire, hope for, or want is to go and depart to be with Christ. That's two things I want to point out to you there. It's not ultimately Paul's choice. And yet if he could make the choice, the choice he would make is the greatest choice that anyone could make. It's the one to be desired above all others, and that would be to to go and to be with Christ. Let's continue. Verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for it is far better. It is very much more better. It is the greatest thing that I, he could ever want. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And so we're faced, well, Paul is faced with the dilemma that we, we are faced with quite often, and that is the dilemma that you're faced with is this, the choice between what you want to do versus what is necessary. I get into this conversation all the time with my kids, and it usually revolves around chores and other fun things. And my statement is, you do, we do what we need to do before we do what we want to do. And this is kind of, in a way, what, what Paul's getting at. And Paul, as we see here in this moment, at the end of the day, what he desires, he says, must yield to what is more necessary for the good of others and the advancement of the gospel. He's saying, you know, this is what I want. And it's the greatest thing of all things that anyone could want, but here's what's necessary. And so in this moment, let's just pause and, say, and, and have a point of application. There, here are two very good questions, or a very good question you can ask yourself. Anytime that there's a decision to be made, that you, you come to a point where you, it could be a small decision, big decision, I don't know. But if you ask yourself, how can I submit to the will of God in this situation? Stop and ask yourself, how can I submit to the will of God in this situation? How can I be more subordinate and how can I subordinate my interests to God's interests in the circumstances and for God's glory? Imagine if everyone just took the time to stop and say, this is what I want, but what is necessary 
for God's glory and the advancement of the gospel. If that was the filter by which we made decisions, what the world would look like would look so much different than it does. Let's continue on. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now when he says here, I know, he hasn't received a private revelation from God. He's not saying he knows based upon the authority of God. God hasn't come and revealed it to him. What he's saying is this, I know that I'm in my own thinking that I'm persuaded of this that I will remain and continue with you all. I will, I'll continue to preach to you. I'll continue to teach you the word of God. And it's because, and here's why at the end of 35, and there can be no other reason that Paul would stay or would want to stay around here on earth. He's already said that, that for him to die and be with Christ is the greatest thing that could ever be desired. And the only thing that would make him say, and for this I'm willing to stay, he said, I'm willing to stay here for this, for your progress, your sanctification, and joy in the faith. Those two things. He's willing to give up the greatest thing he could ever desire for their progress. And I I put the word in sanctification because that's what it means. And they're joined the faith. That's the heart of every pastor, and I believe the heart of every Christian, is that we're willing to give up so much for the progress of others and their joy in the faith, to have our life poured out for God's glory in the gospel. And what's the result of their progress and sanctification and joy in the faith? Well, we see this in verse 26. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So that in me, because of what Christ is doing in Paul, the church may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. I I, I love how our scripture verses end today. It ends where all scripture says things ought to end and it's in, in God receiving glory. He's, he's basically saying all of this, me, me saying that God, Christ is glorified and I would love to be glorified in the fact that I go to be with him. But it's necessary that I stay here for you, for your continued progress, sanctification, and joy in the faith. That I'm willing to give all these things up so that Christ might be glorified in whatever he is doing in me. And he might receive more glory. It ends where scripture says all things should end in God receiving glory. Each one of us this morning, I would assume, want to live but are willing to die. I've been asked that in the past, and I can honestly say that was my thought process. I I want to live, but if Christ called me to, I'd be willing to die. But Paul displays the exact opposite. Paul is willing to live, but wanting to die. Why the difference? 
It's a good question to ask ourselves. You know, our, our natural tendency is to, is to want to live, but be willing to die for the sake of Christ. And Paul was willing to live, but wanting to die. And I think the difference can be found in this, is that there are things in our lives we're afraid to lose for Christ. If we really looked deeply at ourselves, and the only way Paul could live the way he did, as that we see modeled throat acts, and in this letter in particular, the only way that he could live this way was to have strong faith in Jesus Christ that was so real and so deep that death was desirable to him over life. And not in the escapist way, like I want to get out of here because things are too hard, but because death meant to, for Paul a gateway to glory. It meant for him the immediate passage into the presence of his Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the Lord was everything to him, and he was longing to be where Jesus is. And this is what, why Paul could say, you know, I, I'm willing to live, but I prefer to die. It has been said that a, a person is not really ready to live until they are first ready to die. And that is to say, only once we are ready to die are we actually ready to live. And so in order to be ready to die, one must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If a person's on their deathbed, is that not your one chief concern for them? In order to be ready to die, you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered death and who holds the keys of death. And it is when we are at such a place that we're liberated to truly and ready to live every moment of every day because the end is settled. And that is exactly where the Apostle Paul was when he wrote the letter of Philippians and he was a man who was ready to die and because of this he was also ready to live. So my question to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you truly wanting to live? There may be some in this room, I don't know if you're broadcasting at this moment in time, who at the sound of my voice want to live, but struggle to live because they have not prepared to die. They have not placed their faith and trust in the one who has conquered death, who sits at the right hand of the Father, If you truly want to live for Christ, like Paul says, to live is Christ, then we, if we can truly say, as he said, to live is Christ, then we can also truly say to die is gain. It's extraordinary gain. But if you have yet to place your faith and trust in Christ, then your relationship with death hasn't changed, and he will not be a defeated enemy who is forced to parade you into the presence of your king, but instead will take you to the gallows for your own destruction. So today, brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as we conclude, I want to remind you again the things that we covered. To live as Christ means continued fruitful labor. But that's not all it means. It means that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega and every letter in between. And that he's our all in all. And to die is gain simply means this, is that, that we 
get to be in his presence. And it is the greatest of all things that could be desired. But that is only true for those who are ready to die. And the only way to be ready to die is to have already placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then death is settled. And at that point, you can truly live. And that is, that is what I'm wanting you to hear today. And that is my plea, that everyone would be ready to meet their maker and be able to say that death is not a loss, but is great gain, for I have lived for Christ. Let us pray. Glorious and Heavenly Father, we, we give you thanks for your goodness, and we give you thanks that you've gave us your word. Lord, grant to us the faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You've called, you've caused all of us who are called by you, and you've caused all your holy word to be written for our learning. It is more precious, Father God, than fine gold and sweeter than, than the purest of honey and we ask that you'd grant to us the continued blessing of hearing, reading, marking, learning, and inwardly digesting your word that we might be conformed, continually conformed to the image of your son, Christ Jesus, that we might embrace every word and hold fast to its truths found in your revelation. And Father God, make us like Paul. Make us like Paul, who we've seen in your word today, say, to, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Please remove those things from our lives which we are afraid to lose for the sake of Christ. And help us to glorify Christ and point to Christ and rejoice in Christ, for he is the finish line, Father God, towards which we run. He's the prize for which we run, and, and he is the strength by which we run. He is absolutely everything. By the grace of Christ and for the love of Christ and in the name of Christ, we pray this. Amen.